Hi, this is Adrian Paul, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hello, this is BT Edney. I played Heather in the original Highlander film, and you are watching Highlander Rewatched. This is Andy Armstrong. I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Anthony Devonges, also known as the Gabriel Consoli from the Duende episode of Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Grayson. I played Amanda on Highland of the Series and the spin-off called Highland of the Raven, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatch. Everybody involved with Highlander has stories, and they're great, great stories. This is John Mosby, the author of Fearful Symmetry, the essential guide to all things Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Ken Gord, producer of the Highlander series, and you are listening to the podcast Highlander Rewatched. Hey, this is Stan Kirsch. I played Richie Ryan on Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Clay Boris, director of Highlander, the TV series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Gillian Horvath. I helped write Highlander Endgame and Highlander, the series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Martin Neufeld. I played Lieutenant John Stan in Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Welcome to Highlander Rewatch. This week we have a very special guest. Following our coverage of the 1995 film Highlander 3. Ooh, the sexiest film of 1995? That's right. The sexiest film of 1995, as it says on the VHS box art, I believe. We are uh, joined by one of the cast of that film, who played... Uh, Lieutenant Sten, the chain-smoking detective uh, who was on the hunt for McLeod. So please welcome to the show, Martin Neufeld. Welcome, Martin. Hi. I'm happy to be here. Great. We're so happy to have you. How did you first get involved in this Highlander project? Well, actually, it was a very last-minute thing. Uh, I was working on another project. I got a call at 11 at night from my agent and said, listen, can you come down to casting? We set something up. They want to see you. Uh, The director's here. So I said, okay, and they invited me down to audition for, I think it was the third Highlander, I mean, the third Highlander, I'm not talking about the film, but in the film, there is another individual that gets killed near near the beginning, that gets beheaded. Oh, okay. Uh, I came in, and it was just a wild thing. They said, just, okay, you're doing a sword fight, do a sword fight. (laughs) (laughs) Did they be a samurai? Did they just hand you a sword? (laughs) Well, they gave me, I can't remember, they gave me something, some kind of little stick. <laughs> like a broom handle? <laughs> yeah, something like that. So I, you know, I did my best mad samurai kind of thing after watching a lot of uh, Kurosawa films. And, uh, <laughs> and then awesome. they said, okay, great, thank you. And then a couple of days later, again at 11 at night, it's like, okay, can you come down? We, now we need really to talk to you. And it was like, okay. I come down and they said, listen, can you read this? And I read this, and it was for Sten. And I said, okay, great. Can you wait? And then I waited out in the <laughs> hall. And there was, I think, two other people there, oddly enough. And they said, okay, you got the part. Wow. Did, okay. did those other people look right? distraught when, when they told oh, you I, that? I, I assumed 
But I mean, the way it works sometimes is they'll say, can you hold on a sec? Uh, we want to read something with you. And they'll do the other two, and then the others leave, and then they'll call you back in. Okay, and then, so they didn't uh, have to watch you get the part. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But they had to watch me in the film. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been um, me. No. <laughs> it was really unexpected. It was unexpected. I didn't know what the part really was about because I didn't hadn't read the script and I just had a scene and that was it. And then when my agent sent me everything, I sat down and looked at it and I thought, whoa, okay, this is a, a little more meaty than I thought. So what are we going to do with this? I generally like to research my roles a lot. I mean, to me, that is the most fun part of being an actor is to take the time. And I had time. I had several months actually to prepare. I met with my sister was uh police officer in the Montreal Police Force, so she set me up with a detective. And I sat down with him for a while and just talked about pretty much everything there is to do with being a detective, being on a case, pursuing somebody. Uh, that helped me a lot with, with the character. What was like the uh, most interesting piece of advice you got from the homicide detective that informed your performance? Trust your instinct more than your mind. You know, it stands very by the book. And there's a thing with going by the book is that sometimes you stay within your mind, but other times you have to trust your instinct. That was pivotal for me because that helped me a lot in the scene where, you know, I arrest him, come for interrogation, and let him go. I know within me that he's done these things, but I know that there's something else that I don't understand that's bigger than just that. And it's trusting that that allowed me to understand how, why he would let him go, why he would allow him to walk. He would set it up that way. So, and I think, oddly enough, in the film, I haven't seen it in such a long time, that that's the last scene you see me in. I think you're correct. Yeah, I think you're right. You let him go, and then all the police are out. But that isn't the last film. That isn't my last scene. Oh. I mean, one of the things I loved about the film was that it was a very collaborative effort. We all got together before scenes, and we sat down, and we reworked it, and then we shot them. And that, to me, was a lot, a lot of fun. But what happened was, was that because the film was such an international film, meaning that there was money from many different countries... Meaning that there were many executive producers, meaning that there were many producers, there were too many cooks in the kitchen. And so everybody wanted their bit. Everybody wanted their power struggle. You know, they wanted their say. And then you had Christopher who had his say and Mario who had his say, wanted to do his thing his way. So you ended up with a film in which people were doing their own thing, but nobody that was strong enough to guide the ship. Because they were getting pressure from everywhere. And as much as the director was a wonderful director and doing the best he could, he had pressure from all of these executive producers, from his stars. And unfortunately, I think that led to a film that didn't really have a thorough follow-through and didn't complete things. Because Stan, in the end, Stan was at the end of that fight. And when Highlander comes out, Stan is leaning against the car and has a conversation with him about understanding, because him being a father as well, understanding how he's, you know, struggling to save his son kind of thing, and he lets him go. Wow. Now, I'm turning a blind eye, and Highlander leaves. That was a big scene for Stan. I mean... The whole movie, was, for me, for my character, was based on that. And that scene with Mario Van Peebles and Christopher just kept on going and going and going. It was meant to shoot two days. It kept on going four days. And they just cut my scene because they just had no time. That is really interesting because we take a lot of notes before we talk about these movies. One of my big notes is, wait, what happens to this entire police plot? And right. Sten, like, where did, where did any of this go? It just... 
Yeah. It just ends it in an unsatisfying way, and this explains that entirely. Stan, your character in the movie has such an interesting like stake in the game. He's like, I remember this guy, and I'm going to bring him in. And it's kind of sad that it just kind of fizzles out. So that's that's really great to hear. I think there was a couple of other small scenes that built up to that that were completely cut. When I saw the final at a premiere we had, it was like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 it was like, okay, where did it go? But that's the nature of the business, right? I mean, that's that's what they got to do, what they got to do to get the film made, to get the film out of there, and on time and on schedule, on date, get it in the cinemas. And so I said, well, fine, for me... The joy of making the film was the experience, or what I enjoyed the most, was making it, was playing this character and traveling a little bit with it. It was great. It was nice. Were you familiar at all with Highlander before this film? Like oh, yeah. the, fir- the first one's kind of a cult classic. The second one is kind of a notorious sequel. <laughs> uh, cult flop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this one is forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it wasn't a great. I got to tell you, it wasn't a great film. Enough. I mean, I had fun with it, you know. Yeah, I loved Highlander. I loved Highlander a lot. Uh, when I was a fan, to be part of it was like, wow, this is so cool. So, so cool. And I think one of the things that, I mean, acting-wise, for my part, I mean, I, I look back on certain things that I've done, and I think the, they were insistent on having this Brooklyn accent. <laughs> right. I worked so damn hard on that accent and they kept telling me no yes it's okay no that's you know and then they brought in a, a coach the coach said no it's fine what you're doing is perfect and then they brought someone else in when we did the looping when we redid the voicing and it was like oh that's okay that's good that's perfect but i listened to it it seems like i don't know it just didn't seem right somehow i don't know if you've noticed it but i, I notice it maybe it's just me for the character i would have done something differently related to that Oh, what would you what would you have done differently with the voice? Like in your head, what was the Stan I, trademark? I think voice? I would have um, I would have made the accent a lot lighter. I would have had maybe more of a generic New York as a Brooklyn New York. Right. It is and, a very uh, strong accent. Like as, when you enter the scene, it kind of hits. It's like, oh, I know where this guy's from. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, I know exactly. a block he lives on. <laughs> so where did you do the, the shooting for Highlander Three? Was that all done in Montreal for your scenes? Mostly. I think there was something in New York. I almost went to. France, I had almost talked the director into saying, well, listen, you know, I have a European passport and I can work there. So, you know, why don't we make Stan the jailer in the French scene from the past in which he uh-huh. he releases him from the jail, you know? Yeah. Because because right. it would be this time continuum thing and it would work really well with what Stan was doing. He was almost sold, but the European French producers didn't want because they wanted their people. But I thought that would have been a really cool twist on it. Yeah, and it also would have made it make more sense because, you know, the the love interest character, for some reason, straddles both time periods. But is the only one that does. Yeah, with without really without explanation, <laughs> that happens. So if other people were kind of engaged in that and there was more mirroring between the two time periods, that actually would have been pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about something interesting. You know, I've moved on since then, and I've I've gone on to different things. And Stan, like you mentioned, was a chain smoker. I didn't smoke at that time. I wasn't a smoker, and I'm not a smoker now either. But I had smoked for a film I had done two years prior called H, which was a two-hander about heroin addiction. It was a very one best Canadian film and several film awards at the time. So it sounds really light, like a, it's a comedy or something? <laughs> oh, yes, it's a tragic comedy. 
<laughs> right after the film, I, I quit smoking. It was no problem. But because Stan was a chain smoker, the filming took place over six months. It took me two years to quit. It was one of the real downsides of this. But in order for me to do that, finally, after two years, I ended up going to the desert in southeastern California to a Buddhist retreat for three months where there's vegetarian food, no smoking. And that's where I was able to quit smoking. And it got to such a point where there was a, a can near the entrance where people had let their cigarette butts. And I, in the first week, I smoked all of those cigarette butts. Wow. And it, oh, wow. it made me realize, you know, how addicted I was to the cigarette thing. And finally, I was able to kick it because I had no choice. There was no stores, no cigarettes, and just the food and all of that and the meditation and the practices. And it was these practices that led me to where I am, you know, where I ended up going. Because several years later, I continued my acting career. And several years later, I quit performing as an actor. I went out on the street because I had done some preparation and some auditions for the Cirque du Soleil at the time. And they suggested that I take my work out onto the street, which I did. I started hugging people. And that led to uh, being a pioneer of the free hugs movement, of writing in a best-selling book called Hugging Life. Actually, it was best-selling in French, but it was an award-winning book. It, it won a, a gold and a silver award for best independent publisher publishing book for Inspirational Book of the Year in uh, 2007. So, so can you tell I, us how you got into the specifically hugging as performance art and outreach? Like what led you to well, that transition? Well, it was interesting because I had taken these sort of street characters, these mime-like characters out to the street. The first couple of times I went out, I was just like, I couldn't do it. I was just terrified. You know, you're used to performing behind a camera on stage. The audience is over there. But when you're used to performing in the public, they could just tell you to, you know, screw off or whatever, or they can like you or hate you. And it's in Philadelphia, right they there. often do tell you to do that. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. So, And I was literally clowning around. So I told my sister, I said, man, this, this terrifies me. I don't know why I keep turning around and going back home. And she said, well, why don't you just sit down in your suitcase and put a sign and said, you know, I'm scared shitless and I don't know what to do here, which is pretty much what I did, literally. And people started coming by and, and giving me nice comments and putting money in my bucket. And so every day I would write something different on my sign, a different inspiration, and I would just sit there silently. And I kept watching these people going by, and I would see how many sad people closed off into their own little world going by, hundreds of of people every day. I tease these people need hugs, you know. And so I, I, I would see the restaurants and it, they would all have their signs, their blackboards that would written special of the day. So I wrote special of the day on my blackboard. And underneath I said, well, what do I have to offer? And I thought, well, why not free hugs? So I wrote free hugs. And I stood there with my arms open and people started coming. They came for hugs and I would see that they would be smiling after feeling better and I felt good by the fact that they felt good. And so I started doing this every single day, 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, depending on the weather. And I did this for six years. Wow. And uh, How many hugs is that that you've dispensed? That's a couple of hundred thousand. Wow. There you go. And then two years later, I, I wrote this book 
about it, which was, again, you know, I follow the signs. It was like I had a, a, a journalist who came by and said, listen, I want to write an article about you. And it was okay. So they wrote an article and it was a whole page article in the paper. And she had a sub article because on my website, I had different kinds of hugs that I was giving. And I had written, it was like a manual of hugs or something. She said I was writing a book. And she had this whole article about this book on hugging that I was writing. And I never thought about writing a book. And I said, well, if she's writing about the fact that I have to, I'm writing a book, I might as well write a book and wow. so i did <laughs> can, can you tell us what a couple different kinds of hugs are, well, are i'm, like I'm intrigued hug, are there like hug archetypes platonic forms of hugs oh yeah well hold on actually i can i can get you uh, chris can you get me a copy of my book <laughs> i can read you a quickly a page that has all these different types of huggers which you'll probably find quite amusing. Wow. Uh, but the hugging, interestingly enough, just like the acting, the hugging gave me the chance to be a performer, but to actually touch people the way I wanted to touch them. And that's why I entered acting in the first place, because I thought I could change people's lives. But a lot of the time, the roles I would get were very intense roles, many of them very psychotic. I wasn't bringing out a positive influence in the world. Yeah, I was making money. I was doing well. I was always working, traveling a lot, but it wasn't fulfilling me in a, a deeper way. So here, here I have the book. And so what kind of hugger are you? An academic hugger? You will observe hugging, study its effect, even lecture on its benefits. But when it comes down to it, you never actually hug anyone. <laughs> so that's that's Keith. Well, that's just probably, as, I think that's me. Yeah. That's Keith. Yeah, you just described him. How about the aggressive hugger? Like a wrestling <laughs> linebacker, you face your opponent to submit to your back-pounding dominance. <laughs> <laughs> you know those, eh? Yeah, they yeah, yeah. They smack, the, they smack your back so hard. Like you're choking. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. So cuddly, with PJs and teddy bear at the ready... You're always ready for a cuddling pardon. <laughs> that sounds like Eamon. He's kind of a big teddy bear himself. That's true. <laughs> How about the giggler? You can't help but giggle uncontrollably every time anyone hugs you. <laughs> How about the kinky hugger? A hug is only fun when you, one of you is bound and blindfolded. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Maybe oh, that yeah. one's Keith. <laughs> the, neurotic, the neurotic hugger. Hugging can be therapy. Just don't take it out on us. <laughs> Yeah, the questioning hugger. You want to hug me? Why? Are you sure? You're not sick, are you? <laughs> the wishy-washy hugger. You want one, but you don't. But then you do. But then, well, maybe just a little one. And okay. And the zealous hugger. Your passion for hugging is such that you've even written a book about it. So I guess <laughs> yeah. I'm a zealous hugger. But no, it's a really beautiful book. It's called Hugging Life. It's a practical guide to artful hugging. There's a whole section of my story. There's uh, on how I, I got to hugging. There's uh, essays on hugging in society and how it helps. There's a whole section on treasury of hugs, which has 56 hugs, all illustrated, and meditations related to that. So it's a really lovely book. It's uh, quite inspirational. It did really well at that time, and it led to a book tour. It led to a lot of speaking engagements. Wow. And that led to a lot of healing work and working with people and becoming a therapist. And that's what I sort of do now. I've moved to Mexico. I have a retreat center here. It's a 
holistic and tantric retreat center for couples and individuals, and we work with couples on redeveloping their intimacy. And when they're in crisis or when they're a new couple or whatever, uh, we also help individuals uh, who are on a spiritual path to go deeper or to transform their lives. Let's say they're coming from one career and they don't know what they want to do with their lives or they're coming out of a relationship that's been really hard on them. Well, they come here, they spend a week, 10 days, and we work with them individually. We give them a space in which they can heal, in which they can find themselves, find a new direction, a new path in their life or a new path in their relationship as a couple. And that's what I work with now. I uh, perform, I do weddings, tantric weddings. I spent a lot of time in uh, since... The hugging, I spent a lot of time in India, living in India and living in Thailand, studying with different masters and teachers, uh, traditional tantra, not the neo-tantra that you'll find in, in, in America or Canada, uh, which is mostly hedonistic and about pleasure-seeking. Yeah, I was going to say, could you explain exactly what the tantric philosophy is? I think when most Americans at least hear tantric, we immediately think of tantric sex, but it's exactly. a lot more than that, right? Because that's what sells, you know? And unfortunately, uh, not just America, but uh, Canada and the Europe as well, uh, there's a very kind of, uh, we're stuck in our sexuality. There are a lot of issues related to that within society, especially now. And so the emphasis on, on authors and such forth was on sex. But Tantra is really about the movement of energy. It's about harmonizing the masculine and feminine energy within us to, in order to uh, raise our level of consciousness. And Tantra really is about seeing the divine, seeing God or experiencing God or the divine in everything, in every experience, meaning that everything is sacred. So if everything is sacred and you're a man or a woman, and let's say you want to go, you want to have a spiritual life, you can, you know, you used to be able to go, you just go to a monastery, you go to a desert, you go in a somewhere isolated from society. But what happens if you're in society and you're in a relationship and together you want to go beyond just the regular relationship that you have? You want to go higher. You want to truly have a spiritual relationship within your ordinary relationship. Well, you can't just say, well, you know, spirit denies sex, so I'm not going to have sex with my partner. So Tantra says everything is sacred. How do you do that? So your sexuality, your body... You don't deny your body. You, you nurture your body. Your experiences can become sacred if you offer them up as a divine path, if you offer them up as a path to higher consciousness and higher evolutions, personal and spiritual evolution. And that is what we teach here. That is what I teach. How to transform your life so that every moment becomes more meaningful, more fulfilling. Not just the fulfilling of the senses by I'm going shopping or I'm listening to great music or I'm eating something wonderful or I have silk clothes on my body or whatever. But really every part of you. So using the senses as a way of expressing deep gratitude for life and for the life experience itself. And that's sort of what traditional Tantra is about. And it uses the flow of energy. It uses awareness, deep awareness and concentration, different kinds of meditations, different kinds of yogic practices, cleansing practices, and different kinds of uh, attitudes. Like uh, if you look at most, for example, most uh, religions, most languages come from the tantric path. They come from 
Sanskrit, which is one of the original languages. In most of the religions, if you look at the tantric lore, stories from the tantric lore are already based in different other religions. I'm not saying that other religions exist in order to communicate to a certain kind of society at a certain time and are useful to help an understanding and to create archetypes. But these archetypes don't belong to any particular religion. These archetypes belong to the deep consciousness of humanity. And these archetypes are simply translated in different approaches, whether it be different religions. Tantra is a spiritual path as much as it can be, yes. A path that explores sexuality, a path that explores esoteric teachings, a path that explores spirituality, etc. At these retreats, are these retreats for experts or novices? And could you tell our listeners? No, for anybody. For example, if, if you have a struggle in your relationship, for example, many couples are in relationships, they love each other, they get together, they move in, they, they have a child or two, and they each have their responsibilities and their jobs. At a certain point, their polarity, their dynamic of desire stops. And they sort of become equal in their energy, and they're like brother-sister. They're like friends, and they're sharing a life, but there's no real connection anymore. That deep, intimate connection is missing. Well, the couples would come to us, and we would help them reconnect on that deep, intimate level. We would teach them about connecting, not just sexually, but how to reignite the desire. What is the tantric man? What is the tantric woman? And how to create that magnetism, that pull that you had when you were together so that you can be fulfilled as a woman, so that you can be fulfilled as a man, according to the tantric masculine archetype and the tantric feminine archetype. That doesn't mean that a woman can't be a CEO and have drive and have all those masculine, and I don't mean man traits, but masculine traits of of being directive and such forth. And it doesn't mean that a man can't explore his feminine nature and smoking pot and playing the guitar and letting his hair grow, wearing an earring, for example. All of these are masculine, feminine traits. Now, if the masculine, if the man can balance the feminine and the masculine within me, which means he can also be very directive, he can also have vision with his life, and the woman can also allow herself to have that masculine aspect, but can also be hyper-feminine, then suddenly you have a balanced, you have two balanced individuals. And when the individuals are not balanced, one is more the masculine or more feminine, such forth, then it doesn't create a great dynamic. And you have a, I mean you have a wonderful teacher in the U in in the US called David Data who teaches a lot about polarity. You know, if any of of your listeners are interested in finding out more about this kind of polarity thing, you should listen, read some of David Data's books or listen to some of his audio things because he talks a lot about polarity, the masculine and the feminine, in a way that's very accessible to the American audience. It sounds so fascinating to me that in some ways you were set on this path indirectly by chain smoking on Highlander 3. <laughs> well, yeah, indirectly. I mean, we come back full circle, but yes, I mean, there is this thing about, and oddly enough, more than that, I mean, what is Highlander about? Highlander really, I mean, yes, and, you know, cutting heads off, living forever, immortality, but in a sense, that's what we're all seeking. We're seeking this sense of understanding this immortality, not necessarily in this body, but this connection with the universe and how do we how do we go beyond this body? How do we go out there? Like how do we connect with the universe, with nature, 
And in Tantra, there's an interesting saying because it's the woman, the tantric woman is the strong aspect of the relationship. And if the man isn't being in his path, then we have a saying that the tantric woman has to cut his head off. <laughs> wow, that's more on the nose than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, so it, no, but it's quite interesting because it's what we need to do. Because our issue, I think, in society is that we are too much in our heads. Everything is related to what we're thinking, and we believe what we think. And But our true path, like all spiritual paths, teach us to move away from the mind and into the heart. Move into higher states of consciousness where we can release our attachment to the mind and the thought process and allow the ego to be a tool that we can use as to as opposed to being a slave to the ego. So in a sense, Highlander, when it was written, I'm sure, had this kind of background that allowed this to be a parallel kind of story, you know, that has also a, a spiritual significance to it. So bef- before we uh, leave Highlander 3, do you have any interesting stories from the shoot? I had I had a lot of fun. Like I said, there were many producers and that created created a lot of tension because Christopher and Mario had their own direction and reining them in was a little difficult. Both wanted to do their thing. Producers wanted to do their thing. So it was always a struggle with the director because he was trying to guide a ship and they were all pulling in different directions. And that, I think, was the biggest struggle in Highlander. And I just want to mention that uh, if anybody's ever interested in coming to visit me here in, in Mexico in the mountains, they can just check out Santuario Avalon. And I can send you the website and people can check out what I do. Sure. Yeah, it's a beautiful website. It looks fantastic there. Yeah, it does look very gorgeous. I'd like to go there. It is. It's a beautiful place. I want to thank you guys a lot for what you're doing. I mean, I know it's probably a fun project that started out as, you know, something small. And and that you're doing this is nice because at least for me, it allows me to go back and, and look back on my past and say, yeah, yeah, I did this film and it was really fun and and thank you for allowing me to relive that experience, to rewatch, in a sense, my own experience with Highlander. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Martin, I had one maybe quick question. Did any of the Highlander 3 actors qualify into any of your categories of huggers? Do you remember? <laughs> Might be too specific a question. <laughs> yeah. Was Lambert the linebacker hugger? In my head, that's, that's what he is. <laughs> Actually, I, I will give you an. I will give you an actually really interesting story. I mean, Christopher might not like this, but it's not a bad. It's not a bad thing that I'm saying anyway. You know how intense Christopher is with his look. Yeah, he has yeah. this intensity. So you remember the scene on the stairs when I confront him in front of his loft before he goes up, and I said, "I'm going to get you," kind of thing. Right. And he's standing on the stairs and he's looking down at me. He's got this really intense intense look. Well, I know where that look comes from. Christopher wears glasses, and he can't see without them. And when he takes them off and he looks at you, it's because he's trying to see you. (laughs) (laughs) That's where his intense look comes from. And it would surprise me, but it was like, whoa, okay, now I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't because he hates your guts and he's like channeling it. No, no. Well, of course, you know, there's a performance in that, but but that intensity is him really trying to focus, focus on seeing the person that he's talking to, because he can't really focus on them very clearly. In this movie, there's a lot of intense exchanges between yourself and Lambert. What was it like working together? Did you guys have a, a good uh, rapport? Yeah, yeah, it was great. No, it was it was really really nice. Yeah, was it was it Deborah? Yeah, yeah it was Deborah. Deborah. Yeah, she was wonderful as well. Both of them. 
were really, really nice. And I mean, I, they would just invite me to their trailer. We would meet up to talk about the scene beforehand and, and rewrite stuff and re, you know, rework our scenes. And to me, that was, with both of them, it was a really, really beautiful experience. The fact that they were well-known and they did a lot of films, but they brought me in as if I was an equal, which was really great because sometimes I've worked with actors from the States and uh, from Europe that were quite well-known and some of them are just like, I do my thing, you do your thing, I'll see you when the camera rolls, not for that, don't even talk to me. And they were so friendly, so, so open, so friendly. It was really, really wonderful. I had a great experience Fantastic. in that time. Well, thank you so much, Martin, for joining us. Uh, this was definitely a treat for us to talk to you, and I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this experience as well. Uh, for everyone out there, make sure to head on over to Martin's website, SensuaroAvalon.com, is it? Yes, Santuario. Uh, so yeah it's it's sanctuary in spanish basically well again thank you so much for joining us and uh taking this time and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day and weekend thank you thank you goodbye martin thank you martin, very much thanks so much welcome so we just got done talking to martin newfeld lieutenant sten from highlander 3 what do you guys think he sounds like he's taken quite the interesting path, and I just find it mind-boggling that somehow Highlander 3 was indirectly responsible for that. Yeah. Which also, that probably means that Highlander 3 has had a more profound impact on his life than literally anyone else's. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Isn't that what that means? Yeah. I can't imagine too many other people make life-changing decisions in any way related to this movie. Yeah, every movie can touch somebody, even if just one person. <laughs> just one person. Well, in Martin's case, literally. That's right. Because of the hugging. Because of the <laughs> hugging. <laughs> and before before the uh, the interview started, we were watching some of Martin's videos online. And if you go to huggerbusker.com or I guess search on YouTube, huggerbusker, mm-hmm. there's a lot of videos of him doing his street performing and hugging. Uh, Dispensing justice. I mean, hugs. <laughs> hugging justice. They're, they're really uh, tender, sweet moments. And it's really interesting to see how people react to his hugging. Like, they're, they're in some of the clips I know we watched, but like, you can see, like, some people... People are like very willing to give hugs. Some are, you know, like kind of like macho guys, like go like daring each other. You, you go give a hug. You go give a hug. <laughs> yeah, and like then, real macho man. Yeah, um, it's like that song, Macho Man. Right, macho, macho. Uh, but then you see, like, well, one person gives the hug, and then suddenly it's like, oh, it's okay, and then other people do, and it, yeah. uh, you know, has this kind of cascading effect, which I thought is very sweet and touching, literally. How many times are we going to make that joke? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. <laughs> Too many. We hope everybody out there enjoyed this interview with Martin Neufeld, and if you're interested in his other work, seek out a, a lot of it's um, available on YouTube yeah. um, or Hulu. Like, we, we didn't talk a lot about his credits. Like, he was in shows like Are You Afraid in the Dark or... The Mystery Files of Shelby Woo. That's right. Um, as well as the, the film H, which he mentioned mm-hmm. uh, on this uh during this interview which did win a ton of critical acclaim and looks like a really interesting movie yeah. uh, that deals with people's heroin addiction oh boy which is oh unfortunately boy. still very, top- very yeah. topical That's now right. yeah there's lots of heroin yeah. especially in the philadelphia area That's right. but uh if you're looking for a respite from those those elements uh check out his website and uh book yourself a trip uh, to the sanctuary. sanctuary. Yeah, that's right. Sanctuary. And it's in uh, southern Mexico. It looks absolutely beautiful. It kind of uh, looks like it's on a hillside kind of overlooking the jungle. Not too far from Mexico City either. So it looks like a wonderful stay. Yeah. A wonderful sten. Wonderful sten. Wonderful sten. <laughs> it's yeah. a wonderful lieutenant sten. Uh, <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Martin. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, make sure to tune in next week for another brand new Highlander Rewatched episode. I've been one of your rewatchers. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. This is Eamon. Bye. Bye. See ya.